Galatians 3. I'm going to read from verse 19 down through verse 25. Paul writes, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would please be pleased to speak the truth of your word. We ask that it would be proclaimed, that it would be heard, that it would be believed on, and that you would use it to build up your church and to glorify your name. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Not too long ago in my classroom, there was a pre-class conversation going on among a few of the students, and for some reason, someone mentioned 9-11. And one of my young students turned around and asked her classmates, what's 9-11? She had never heard of that day that changed American history forever. She did not know that there was a pre-9-11 time in our country where we were perhaps ignorant because we didn't want to believe that terrorists hated us and wanted to destroy us. And there is a post-9-11 in which our country has been changed. The way we live our lives in many, many ways has changed. And I think in a sense, uh, that's kind of what Paul is getting at in this passage. We talked last week about, uh, and I, I like the phrase that some of the commentators have used, if you want to try to define or put a title on the polemic that Paul is bringing against the agitators, those who would tell the Gentile believers in Christ that they must add the law of Moses to their faith, I think Paul would ask the question, what time is it? When in salvation history are we talking about? And some of the commentators would bring us back to B.C. and A.D., before Christ, and Anno Domini, after the Lord. That great day that great Christ event in salvation history that changed not only the history of Palestine, but the history of the world. 
Paul asks two rhetorical questions in this passage. We looked at the first of these in verse 19 last time. There was the argument that if the law does not invalidate the promise, and the law itself cannot bring inheritance and the blessings, why then the law? And Paul doesn't really answer that directly. Uh, the, the question boils down to people saying, okay, Paul, in your mind, what is the purpose of the law? And he doesn't answer that in 19 and 20, but he tells us that the law was added. It, it, it came later. It was to make us understand the heinousness, the seriousness of the violation of God's law. That sin, it was added because of sin, because of transgressions. But as we saw, the law and the promise are on the same team, but they serve different functions in salvation history. The law is limited. It was, have a, had a limited function, and it had a limited time because the law came 430 years after the promise, and it came third hand. It came through angels by the hand of the mediator. But Paul can hear the second question coming up in people's minds. Is then, because the law is different, because it came later, because it was third hand, not directly from God as the promise was to Abraham, is the law contrary to the promises of God. Paul seems to be asking, okay, am I now saying that at one time God accepted Abraham on the basis of faith, and then sometime later God decided to lead Moses to teach the people that they are accepted by God on the basis of keeping the commandments? Did the way of salvation change? Did the way of coming to a right relationship with God change with the coming of the law? Do people no longer rely on the promises of God for salvation? Does the law make the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham a moot point? That it is useless? What is Paul's response? It should be very familiar to anyone who has read the writings of Paul. May it never be. It's an expression of abhorrence that you would even think a thought. It's ridiculous. It is preposterous. As if Paul asks, like John Calvin, who dares to imagine a disagreement between the law of God and the promises of God? He's already said in verse 20, where God is one. The Lord our God is one God. He has one purpose. He has one mind. He is consistent with himself. Yet the law and the promises which both come from God have different purposes, different functions. One was granted to Abraham directly. The other was ordained through angels. And yet, 
God has his purpose for each. And so now, finally, Paul is going to answer the question, why then the law? It's not contrary to the promises, even though it is different. And so he begins his logic statement in verse 21, the second section, for if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Well, Paul uses a logic syllogism, again, called a conditional syllogism. If something, then something. And I did, I will admit, I did have to go to my textbook and look up exactly what the logic statement was all about and how to try to explain it. And it did catch my eye that in that chapter that explains this type of syllogism, the author had put, he puts these little pithy quotes at the top of his chapters, and this one I think was spoken directly to me, but he, it comes from a publication called The Law of Thumb, and it says, somebody who thinks logically is a nice contrast to the real world. <laughs> Christians need to learn to think logically. They need to learn to think God's thoughts after him as they are given in the scriptures. So we're going to take some time to look at this if-then statement because it's easy for us to get it wrong, to, to commit logical fallacies when we read and study, but when we also try to explain the gospel to others. And especially when we try to come to something that I think uh, as Christians um, and not coming from Jewish stock, we, we are confused about the law. It's very easy for us in our culture to say, well, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, and totally leave the law behind. And yet Paul is saying, are they contrary? Have you, have you thought that we just jettisoned the law altogether and, and just cut out the entire five books of Moses? May it never be. God forbid. Do not do this. You've, you've got it wrong. His logic statement reads like this. If a law that could make men alive had been given, then the righteousness would have come by that law. But righteousness does not come by the law. Therefore, a law able to make men alive has not been given. Paul has already, and you can think of this, we're in 321. Keep your thumb there and look back at 221 briefly with me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He has already said, but Christ did not die in vain. He did not die needlessly, therefore righteousness does not come through the law. Since righteousness does not come by the law, no law that makes men alive has been given. And yet, the Jews in that culture, as far as I can tell, believed that the law did make alive. 
And to me, this is the hard part to see. Making alive, I believe, is the same and is closely connected, at least, with the word righteous. One being the process and one being the state. The one being that which you come to. Making alive, being made righteous. But there are documents that we can see called the Mishnah, and this is from the Mishnah Abot, which was, I think, written about the third century. I need some of my historians to help me there. But, but listen to these phrases that come directly from the book that is extra-biblical, of course. It is written about the law, but listen to this phrase. Lots of Torah, the law, lots of life. If he has gotten teachings of the Torah, he has gotten himself life eternal. They believe that the scripture, the, the law, and one who would keep the law is able to give eternal life. It is able to save them. But Paul is saying the law is limited not only in its function and in its time, but in its ability because it cannot make alive. A law that can make men, women, children alive, give them righteousness, has not been given. It cannot secure righteousness for us. The law offers God's blessings to those who are able to keep it, but, but, in the words of commentator Douglas Moo, the life that the law promises is inevitably frustrated by the debilitating reality of human sinfulness. We don't like to talk about that in our generation. We don't like to talk about it in that culture. We want to stick with love. We want to stick with joy. We want to stick with grace. But if you don't understand sin, you can't understand joy and love and grace. In the words of Philip Ryken, the problem with the law is not the law, but the fact that we break it every day. We cannot keep the law. Man is not able. If you don't believe it, sit down with Romans 1, 2, and 3. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All men believe the lie that they can make God in their own image. That they can achieve. They can work themselves to being acceptable with God. Paul is repudiating the law. I'll give that. He's repudiating the law, but he's not jettisoning the law altogether. Because, I mean, he's answered, and you might be frustrated at this point going, okay, I know what the law can't do, but what does the law do? It was doing the work of God. We've already established, I hope, that the law came from God, yes, through the angels, by the hand of the mediator, Moses. But it was from God. But it was preparing the way for something else. Not only does it reveal sin, 
and reveal the heinousness of sin, verse 19. But Paul says it confines us. It imprisons, and not just us, but it imprisons all things. Look at verse 22. But the scripture, and I believe by the scripture he means the entire scriptures, but basically the law, the five books of Moses, has shut up all men, and it would be all things, under sin. It, it, It shut everything up. Again, if you have trouble with that, go to Romans 8. And what does Paul say there? The law has uh, convicted to slavery, us in slavery to corruption. It says the whole creation, the entire cosmos groans because of the sinfulness of man. It's not just men that are under the power of the law but it is the entire creation. John Calvin says it shuts up all men under accusation and therefore instead of giving, it takes away righteousness. In other words, the the law does not make men better, it makes them worse. That is the function of the law. And Paul describes that to us in in two illustrations. He, 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 um, what do you call it? He he animates this. He he makes it in a concept and gives it personality here. He says in verse 22 that the scripture has shut up all men under sin. It's like a jailhouse. But he keeps going from there. He says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. It's a jail keeper. It's the jailer. It is the one who holds the key. Standing guard, watching, checking every action and every intent that we have. A man named G.G. Finley wrote, The law posts its ordinances like so many sentinels round the prisoner's cell. The cordon is complete. The iron circle will not yield. There is this sense in which you are held in prison. You are held in jail by the law. It it is meant to bring you to despair, to to bring us all, all of its urging, all of its force is to force us in one direction, is to get us to see we can't keep the law. We can't work ourselves to God's satisfaction. We can't make him look down and say, boy, you've performed, you deserve to be with me. It is meant, as Paul says, it is meant to lead us to Christ. It is meant to lead us away from our own efforts, the doing, and it is meant to lead us to faith. And Paul adds another illustration, another uh, giving a, a personality to the law. He said it is the guardian or the pedagogue. Now some of your scriptures use, and, and I, I, I don't like to say it of translations because I'm not a good translator myself, but some of your translations say schoolmaster or tutor. But that, that's not a good translation. He, he's not an educator. He's not the teacher. He's the guardian. 
Literally, he's the pedagogue. You know, pediatrics. It's a doctor who operates or treats children, right? And it's the word child. It's a child guardian. He's one who is a protector. Normally, it was the rich Greek families who could afford to, to pay a slave to be their children's protector. He's a part-time babysitter. He's a part-time chaperone. He's a, he's a part-time probation officer. That's, that's what he is. And, and yes, there, there are writings that tell that some of these pedagogues, um, they actually uh, had an affectionate relationship with their, with their student, that they, they would actually, you know, there was some respect there. But I, th I think in the context of what Paul is writing here, the, the focus is, is on one who was set to, to guard and to, had, had the authority to, to punish, to show them this is how you are to live, and it, this is the consequences if you do not obey. And he helped them get dressed in the morning, you know, wake up, get dressed, eat your breakfast, put your book bag together and get it all done, grab your musical instrument, and let's get to school on time. And there was a place where they could sit outside the classroom while the student was in with the teacher, they would wait and they would go with them on their way home, and they would make sure that they followed all the rules. He's not, again, not an educator, but a disciplinarian. He was there to shape the child's moral character. He was a protector, but he also, in many cases, carried a rod or a staff. And I don't think if it were me, that rod and that staff would not comfort me because it was there as a threat. If you do not obey, you will be punished. But what was the job? Their job was to work themselves out of a job. Their job was to bring the child to a place where they were ready for the next phase of life. Until the time comes, as in the words of Paul, when they are no longer under the guardian. And the, the task of the law is to bring us to the place where we are no longer under its dominion. I believe firmly that Paul is not saying, I never follow the direction of the law. I believe that he did. But I also think that he says, I am never, because of where we are in Christ, I am not under dominion of the law. And there's very different things. So what does this, does this function teach us? that the law shuts us up to sin so that we do not have the illusion of being able to make ourselves alive. Jesus said that to Nicodemus, didn't he? Do you not understand these things? You must be born again, but it's not by the law. The law is meant to lead us to Christ. It protects us from the great delusion that we can make ourselves acceptable to God. The law, in fact, kept people safe. 
because it showed our inadequacy, showed what we were incapable of doing, but it was there until faith should come. Until, and these are great words, until the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The faith, as he says later, which was later to be revealed. Now that faith has come, he says, we are no longer under the pedagogue, the guardian. That God's blessing might be given to believers because he will, he promised, did he not? He will bless his people. He will give them what he said that he would give them, that we may be justified by faith. What is Paul's focus in all of this is that faith, the faith which was to be revealed. Paul is saying that it was there all along. The, the, the idea is that it, it was intended for revelation, but it was waiting in readiness to be revealed. And I don't know, I'm not getting the mind of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The, those who were men of faith, exactly what they envisioned to come. But the function and character of the law was directing all the time toward Jesus Christ. Not to man's ability. If you can do it, that's for you. But if you can't, there's no. We go back to that question that Paul, I think, would ask. What time is it? In verse 24, therefore the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Faith is always, always, always how humans relate to God. The object of faith, God's only begotten Son, has been revealed. Faith is not merited. Ephesians 2 tells us this. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But it is a channel of blessing of God to us. And all sinners who have been shut up under the power of the law and see their sin for what it is, sin against a holy God, and turn in repentance and come to faith in Christ will be saved. And what is the result? We're no longer under the law as a law covenant. We're no longer under that law as controlling the way that men women and children, look at salvation. We're no longer it's under its power, its rule, its sovereignty, its dominion, or its commands. The emphasis here is on faith, not on doing. It is on the promise, not 
the law as that which brings salvation. Came across a hymn, and I don't believe that we have sung it here, but it's in our, our hymnal. And it seemed like these couple of verses in this hymn called The Law is Good describes what Paul has just been teaching. The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die and has no power to justify. To Jesus we for refuge flee, who from the curse has set us free, and humbly worship at his throne, saved by grace through faith alone. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are, these are powerful words, these are humbling words that from eternity past you, you had this plan and it was kept in readiness to be revealed at the proper time. And you have allowed us on this side of the cross to look back and see the purpose of the promise and the purpose of the law culminating in the glorious work the death, the burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say hallelujah, amen. You have done it. We ask that you would help us to walk in this truth and to rejoice daily in the joy that you have given us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you please rise for the benediction. From 1 Corinthians chapter 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.